Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we sit down and explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the World Series champ and current San Francisco Giant skipper, Gabe Kapler. Baseball stuff! Baseball stuff! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with the 2004 World Series champion. He's also the 2021 NL Manager of the Year, the current skipper of the San Francisco Giants. Ladies and gentlemen, Gabe Kapler. Gabe, thanks for coming on the program. Booney, really glad to be here with you, man. I'm excited about this conversation. Very cool. Me too. Me too. Because, you know, looking into Gabe Kapler, you, you were one of the one of the guys, you know, the saber metrics, and I'm really interested on your take, what's going on in the game now versus, you know, say 20 years ago, right off the top. What does the average baseball fan not get when it comes to saber metrics? What are they missing? Um, probably that it's just one tool, right? I think it's, it's been a divisive thing. Like you're either an analytics sabermetrics guy or you're you're old school and i just kind of think that's bullshit to be honest with you it's just not how it is you know we should all be a little bit of everything right it, in the same way um our personalities right i'm not you're not all serious or all like playful in life you got a little bit of, of everything in you and so i mean if you if you grew up collecting baseball cards you're you're a stats guy <laughs> you know what i mean i I grew up with, with, you know, Don Mattingly and Wade Boggs baseball cards and looking at their batting average and their homers and their even stuff like, you know, on base percentage. And, you know, I think I'm as old school as it gets. And at the same time, I'm, I'm definitely a guy that likes to use stats. So the average baseball fan probably puts um, you in a category of, of being traditional or old school or progressive and new school and analytics driven. And I just think, I just don't think that's right. No, what, I about, mean, what about you? Well, what about you? My thought is this, you know, I, I I grew up in the game. This has been my my whole life. When sabermetrics came into uh, the analytics started to to come into the game, you know, from our generation when we played, it, it really wasn't a thing. So my first my my first impression of it is, oh, this is something new, but it wasn't to dismiss it. You know, it's like now it's, you know, fast forward to today, it's 2023. This, the game is going to evolve. It's going to move on. It's going to, you know, players are getting more athletic. They're, they're more into training than, well, you were into training. I got, I got into training in about 99. It was a huge part of my, uh, my preparing for a season, the weight room and diet and all that stuff. But nowadays everybody's into it, you know, and, and with the facilities we have and, and just the finances that are in the game these days that I was just, I just came back. I, I was talking to you a few days ago when we set up this meeting, I just got back from, from a fantasy camp and I've never really done a fantasy camp. And, and it's amazing to me, Gabe, I was sitting there thinking in 1990, when I signed my locker room, what it looked like and what these minor league kids get today, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome, but that shows you how far, the game has progressed. I took it, but I, getting back to the to the topic, I I take that stance of I'm still learning about it, but I'm thinking it would be almost stupid of me to dismiss it and go, no, you know, I hate when I hear uh, an ex player, you know, from from our era or before our generation, 
and just come out and dismiss it. Say, oh, no, that that'll never work. It's you know, when we played, it was the best. Well, I think that's kind of ignorant stance to take instead of learn, learn what it is, apply it when necessary. It doesn't mean just because you sit in a meeting and you've got all these numbers still as a manager. And you know this probably there's still got to be a gut feeling. There's got to be no doubt when the game's on the line, nut crunch in time. Uh, the easiest thing is what does the computer say? But, but you got to have a gut feeling with the guy on the mound, maybe his personality, his heart versus, Hey, if it's a different guy, I make a different decision. But I think the great managers take what they can from analytics Take what they can old school, combine it. That's the perfect. I think that's the perfect storm. But I still think as a manager, uh, the best ones are going to have the best gut, if that makes sense. No, no question. I mean, it's I try to to help people understand it. I try to take it out of baseball. Is baseball such an interesting sport? And it's so it's so nuanced and there's so many layers, but everybody understands um, you know, what it's like to make some sort of deal in business, rather, whether it's like you're negotiating over a price or, or maybe you're doing like a real estate deal or something like that, right? You're evaluating, you're, you're evaluating a home. You're going to go shake hands with the person that's selling you the home and get to know that person, get a gut feel about them. Are they honest? Are they not honest? And at the same time, you're going to look at the numbers on the page. Like, is this thing going to pencil out? Am I going to be able to rent this thing? What does the market look like? Right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't take any of that information and throw it away. So why in baseball are we like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to use my gut and not use the other information I have or vice versa. I'm going to keep my face buried in the computer and not even look up and watch the game. Well, you got to do a little bit of everything. So my, my take on it is, is very similar to yours. The only, the only thing that I would disagree with you on is, you know, our generation and our era was actually pretty mature at that point. So we did have that. It just, we weren't, necessarily paying as much attention to it, but think about it like this. Like I came up, you, you signed in 90. I signed in 90. Yeah. Okay. I signed in 95. And then like, you know, my, my core years were probably like the early two thousands. We played a, you a lot, right? I was with the Rangers. You were with right. the Mariners. There's a lot of like, you know, American league West and your teams were awesome at that time. But m- my point is when I got to the Red Sox in 2003, Theo Epstein was the, the GM and you know Ben Sherrington was working in the organization and Mike Hazen, who now is the general manager of of the Arizona Dimebacks. All these guys were were very heavy into um, peering at numbers, right? And and that came from Bill James, who who also worked for the Red Sox for a really long time. I mean, shoot, Moneyball. That whole revolution was the early two thousands, right in the middle of our careers. So it was happening. We just weren't necessarily you know, immersed in it, like the executives were immersed in it. And now players, this is the thing that blows my mind, Bruni. And you talked about the clubhouses and what they look like, but the players are analyzing numbers in a much different way. Like you, you, if you sit in on a bullpen session with the player right now, they're going to be talking about vert. They're going to be talking about horizontal and, and, and uh, vertical movement. They're going to be talking about pitch shapes. It's a whole different language and it's not, just coach driven. It's not just front office driven. It's player driven because they're cutting their teeth at facilities like driveline and push performance. And, and those are those, that's the language that they're, they're speaking in those facilities. So that is the thing that I think has changed most is how the players are talking about their own, their own sport and their own performance. I don't know. Have you, have you heard any of that? Have you, uh, have you talked to well, oh, I, 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 how about this? I, I had, uh, 
I had Bauer on. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting conversation. You know, I, I mm-hmm. kind of I got educated a little bit. I talked to him. Really astute, really smart, high IQ baseball guy. Really talked and and, and kind of laid it out there uh, as layman as he could. So everybody could understand what he was talking about. His thing was, and I asked him this question. I said, I said, too much information in the wrong hands. Can it be a detriment? He said, absolutely. Talking about a young player coming up. I've got a, I've got a son that's in the minor league. So what you're talking about, I hear all these things. He'll come, he'll come home to me and, you know, he'll get on his, he'll get on his computer and show me some things. And it's really interesting to me because as a player, the one thing I wanted was as much Intel as I could possibly get. And you remember in the early two thousands, it was, man, you're scrambling around and, and we'd have the the video of uh, whoever we were facing tonight, maybe his last start. If you had a really sure. good video guy, he'd have the start hit the last time he faced us, you know, yep. whatever particular team we have. And that was it. I'll tell you today, I'd be a kid in a candy shop. You give me all this information, everything at my fingertips. I'd get into the ballpark or I'd get into a city before a four game series. I just go upstairs with my computer and I would sit there and I would watch every reliever they have in that bullpen, their tendencies, who, who, who's the starting pitcher tomorrow. I want to see that. I want to see his last start. I want to see if he's doing anything different from two months ago when I faced him. So I'm kind of envious of the kids today, how much they have, how, how much they have at their fingertips. But I also think too, you know, and you said it, we, we talked about it at the beginning, it's got to be a mix. You know, we can't, I, I see these young players. The one thing that bothers me about it, I see these young players and it's so much on exit velocity and this and that. And when, once you're a big league player, you're kind of established and it doesn't matter. People know, but when you're trying to make it coming up through the minor leagues and, and they feel that pressure, like, Oh, there's so much, everybody's evaluating me. I got to get my velo, my exit velocity up, my exit velocity up. And I think that can, that can, add to bad technique in hitting. No doubt. You know no what doubt. I'm saying? So I, I think I think it can be a detriment, but I think there's more good than bad. Yeah. I mean look like the the information that we get now is just it's just way more robust than it than it was, as you mentioned, when we played. I mean, I, I remember coming to Tiger Stadium for the first time I came up with the Tigers. And this was the old Tiger Stadium. And that's all it was, like these small monitors in the clubhouse with as you mentioned you know, a starter and you got to, to know that starter, maybe. Um, but now these guys, this is, you know, this is to your point, supporting your point. These guys are bringing their, their laptops and their iPads and their phones and whatever it is that they're using home. And the night before they have, um, you know, they have some public facing, but sometimes internal sites like giant sites or whatever the, the team is that they're playing for sites that they can go through and basically watch anything. And there's, there's nothing, that they can't access. And yeah, to your point, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. I just wanted to touch quickly on the exit velo conversation and, and it creating some bad habits. This is, this is definitely true. Like the most important thing for a hitter is barrel accuracy. Can you get the sweet spot of the bat on the ball? And sometimes that means not swinging as hard. I mean, obviously taking a good healthy rip, to try to drive the baseballs is a good thing. You want to be the most fluid, athletic, and powerful version of yourself in the batter's box. But can you get the sweet spot of the bat on the ball? Like one thing that I've talked to some of our players about is as you're trying to drive towards that exit velocity, go play pepper too. This is like the, one of the biggest lost arts in my, in my mind is 
just that bat to ball skill, which is why we see so much damn swing and miss is it's, it's really difficult for modern players to adjust a lot of them, modern players, not all of them to adjust their swing path. They're just in one slot. And if the ball's in that slot, they're going to murder it. And if not, they're, they're probably going to swing and miss. And so, um, exit below is great, but so is just finding the sweet spot on the barrel. And, um, yeah, I mean, you, you took a pretty big hack and it was a pretty aggressive one, particularly in those years. Were you thinking about just squaring it up or were you thinking about like you put it in the seats? What was your mindset? My, you know, the second half of my career, I changed, uh, you know, I changed a lot of things. I, I got to, to Seattle my, my second time around. Uh, I got with Edgar Martinez. He was kind of my guy the second half of my career where I picked his brain. I remember in spring training, I, you know, I had done a lot of things. I'd driven in, I'd hit 25 home runs. I, I drove in 98 runs. I've hit 300. But I went up to Edgar and I said, Poppy, I said, you know, I think he's had two batting titles at the time. And everybody knows how great of a hitter he was. I said, how do I just be better? I, I know I'm better than, than, you know, I've had some pretty big years, but I, I know I haven't tapped into it. And we started talking about it and approach and uh, preparation for a 162-game schedule. And I really started to think differently. But second half of my career, to answer your question, I, 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 I would sit there in batting practice and we'd get loose maybe that first round. But from the second round on, it was I want to get a pitch out over the plate and I want to hit it over that mountain in center or through that mountain in center field. That was every mm-hmm. swing I took. Now, interesting. In a, in a game situation, same thing. Same thing. I want to hit it through. I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to hit a home run, but I want to get a good pitch to hit and I want to knock the shit out of it. That was my thought. It was never home run ever. And, and like you hear a lot of people talk about, do you ever think about hitting home runs? Yeah, we all do. You know, I'm sure Gabe Kapler thought this is a time for, yeah. if I go deep right here, it'd be good. How often did you do it? Same with me. I probably thought about home run 200 times in my career, maybe hit, hit a home run one time doing it. So what does that right. tell, what does that tell me over that body work? <laughs> Don't think about hitting a home run. Think about getting a good pitch to hit, hit smoking it through the middle of the yep. field. And then when yep. you hit the home runs, it's oh, wow, that's great. That's just a, that's just a, an added bonus. No doubt. And, and I think there, so sometimes the home run comes from just, you know, quieting your body a little bit. And look, you can take, you can try to hit it through that mountain in the middle of the field, whatever you can think about low line drive through that mountain. And, you know, you can be synced up with your timing and, and get that ball in the air and hit a high fly ball home, home run too. And there's no rules to this. So, um, and look, everybody's a little bit different. Baseball players are all different. We have guys who, who actually are swinging to hit home runs. I remember, and you probably remember this too, hearing about Sean Green and, and Carlos Delgado and their, their batting practice um, routines. So this is in Toronto. Um, Sean told me that, that those guys would think about hitting home runs to the middle of the field. That was their move. Like they wanted to practice it too. So they would go back and forth in BP trying to drive the ball out of the ballpark to the middle of the field. And then in the games, they felt like they had a better idea of how to do it. But I think I was more like you. I didn't, when I thought about hitting homers, I didn't. And when I thought about just squaring the baseball up, um, that was when I, when I drove it, drove it the best. And, um, you know, also we, we go through times when we don't feel like we have as much power as we'd like to have in those times. Just, just survive. I just wanted to kind of survive those at bats. I didn't have the, the type of, of playing career that you did, but 
um, you know, I, I hit 300 a couple of times too, and, and was able to, to just kind of scratch and claw and survive. And, and, um, and, and I think that just had to do with being, being adjustable and, and players, players today are, um, they're just learning how to do that. Oh, one thing I was going to throw at you, very interested in your take on this. I think pitchers are nastier now by a pretty good margin than, than anything I faced. Um, you know, you had Eric Gagne at his peak in, in 2000, 2001 with a hundred and then a change up. It was like 80 and well, it just came out of his hand hot, but like, it feels like there's two or three guys in every single bullpen now who can touch a hundred miles an hour at, you know, at various times. And, you know, the movement that these guys are getting on their pitches is just so nasty. I was hoping to get your take on that. And, and if you think that there are pitchers that were that nasty when you played. Well, I think the greats are always going to be the greats, you know, still, still in the nineties, when I had to go into Atlanta and face Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin still as big a nightmare because they were technicians. Okay. Uh, the, the Pedros of the world, the, the Clemens, the shillings when he came up with that split, Randy Johnson, all going to be great, nasty stuff. Kevin Brown underrated the stuff that yes. he had. Um, you mentioned Ganya. Uh, here's what I think. I think each generation is different, you know, and, 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 and this is the one cool thing that I have that kind of nobody I know, I know has is when I was playing my career, I had a grandpa. <laughs> that had played 13 right. years in the big leagues. And he had story after story. To, you know, I'd come out, he'd wear me out, Gabe. And, and I'd mm-hmm. be like, Gramps, I don't, I don't need to hear about your damn Bob Feller story again. Randy was right. nasty, nasty tonight. And yes, he's just as nasty as Bob Feller ever was, you know, but those old, <laughs> those old school guys were like, Oh, come on. You know, nobody was better in his eyes than Bob Feller. Now fast forward. Now, now we got dad. And, and he, you know, I talk about Randy Johnson to dad and he go, well, you didn't face Steve Carlton. Okay. Carlton was nasty. Randy Johnson is nasty. I think the guys today, and I think there's, it's twofold. I think one reason is, is because a lot of the finances on for ball clubs now are going towards the bullpen in the early two thousands, in the nineties, you might pay a closer pretty good money, but that bullpen was made of a bunch of guys making 500, 750,000. Maybe you'd have a guy making a million. Now they're dedicating uh, a, a decent amount of the budget to that power bullpen. And I find that the game has changed a little bit. Power bullpens are important now where in our day. Yeah, they're important, but the starting pitching was always the most Important and, and we used to sit there and go, hey, we got to get him out of the game. We're facing Pedro in Boston. We got to knock him out of the game, get into that pen. Now I look at some of these pens and go, we might we might just want to score a few runs <laughs> get into that pen because I see what's coming right. out of that pen. But I think each generation, I think the hitters uh, come up with that, you know, uh, to to somebody that played in 1945, don't tell me they were throwing like Pedro was throwing, like Randy Johnson was right. throwing, like Clements right, was. Right, right. They weren't, but but you know what? That was gen- their generation. They came up with whatever their speed was. Uh, you and myself, we came up with uh, 97 being really hard. Now 100's really hard. So I think each generation, the, the hitters adjust to it. They're coming up with the velocity. So I think this is just their 
Cabrera. I think you, you go out 50 years from now, uh, there might be, it might be normal for every starter to throw a hundred miles an hour. Who, who knows with, with just yeah. hu- human development in general, my question to you back to you is <clears throat> it seems to be a bigger discrepancy in, in the really good hitters. And then it, it falls off. I mean, when, I, I never remember in in 2000 or 1998, if you hit 205, you, you're you'd be you'd be lucky to have a uniform hanging in your locker the next year. I see the discrepancies discrepancies getting bigger. You had those great players. You had you had the Tony Gwynns that were going to hit 330 every year. But then you had that next tier, you know, of the 280 guys and then the average player, the decent, OK, player, they hit around 250. And that was and that was it. But you didn't have guys hitting 200. Now I see the guys that are hitting 300, the Mike Trouts of the world. Uh, they're going to hit 300. Uh, Soto's. I know he didn't do it last year, but a great, you know, a great talent. Um, Buster Posey, who you who you had in San Francisco, he hit 300 every. He was a great hitter. You want him up in a big situation, but then it drops off. And nowadays it's like, wow, if you're hitting two. 250, 260, and you got a little damage, you're okay. And then it drops off. I mean, it's common now to have the bottom rung. A lot of guys hitting 198. And, and in our generation, I just didn't see that. What do you think that – what do you attribute that to? I mean, I do think it has to do with the nastiness of the of the pitchers. I just think it's harder than ever to hit. Um, as So you said that – and we talked about this. As hitters, they have way more information. They have a chance to prepare pitchers same thing like they have they can exploit the exact weakness of of the hitter and they have really nasty shit to do it with um you know you mentioned mike trout and he's i personally think mike trout is the greatest player that ever lived i think he's going to go down as the greatest player that ever lived i think he's well on his way and um i think it's easy to make that case um but he even mike trout has has some pitches that he has some difficulty with um, and those pitchers are going to try to go after that spot. Now, if they miss, Mike Trout's going to punish them. Uh, but, but I do think it's, it's nastier and it's more information than the pitchers have ever had. I'd also say that um, batting average, even when we played, was not as important as the number one thing that a hitter can do is not making out. Hitters are good at not making, out, making outs. They keep their uniform. They're, they make a lot of outs. They're probably going to lose their, their uniform. So whether that comes via you know, a walk or a base hit, you know, that's an important factor. It's why you see guys sometimes with the 220 batting average, but, you know, a, a relatively high on base percentage and damage, like you said, and they could play some good defense. It's a really valuable player. I just don't think we evaluated it the same way in, in, in the era that, that we played in. Now we started to, and I think we saw, we started to see guys get rewarded for just finding their way on base. But there's just a lot of guys who punch way more. They swing and miss way more, but they find their way on base and they do damage and, and hopefully they play um, good defense. Now, what I'll say is this is something that I'm really happy about is the league is, is really starting to reward good defense and good base running as well. And that, that definitely wasn't the, the case. It used to be just the back of the baseball card, um, you know, batting average home runs, RBIs, and I mean, obviously the eye test would tell you if a guy was a poor defender, but now we have enough information where we can objectively evaluate how good a guy is on the bases and how good he is as a defender. 
and and players are really starting to pay attention to that and drive towards that overall package, which is again back to Mike Trout. What makes him so special? Is he's an animal in the batter's box. He's a great base runner. He's a fast base runner, and he's been an excellent defender in his career. And so, and and again, like this guy's in his you know early early to mid thirties, so he's got a lot of time. The outliers end up playing. Um, you know, into their late thirties and producing into their late thirties. Can you imagine if, if you get Mike Trout with eight more years of the type of production that he's had so far in his career or something close? I mean, this is, this is a special human. Yeah. And I, I really kind of grinded on Mike Trout the last year or two, just really watch him. Cause I keep hearing he's the best player. He's the best player. And I, and, and the more I watch him, it's like, all right, I'm in that camp. I see why people say he's the best player now because it's tough. There's so many good players around baseball, but I really started to watch Mike and and you're right. I I think he is. I think he is the best player in the game. He just got to stay on the field. Um, Yeah. I mean, but he's, he mostly has just, he just didn't this, this past year. Right. 2002 let's uh, this is a this is a hypothetical 2002 typical get day for for us we come to the ballpark let's say we're playing your rangers mariners are playing the rangers <clears throat> i'm gonna come to the ballpark we're gonna have meetings on the board they're gonna say okay we got a hitters meeting he's got a pitchers meeting you know i'd sit on that for for defensive reasons and we'd go over each hitter we'd go over tendencies we'd go over who's not gonna beat us uh Boom. We go over their bullpen. Who's, you know, I have the hitting meeting. We're going to go over their bullpen, what, what they've been up to. I always look to who's hot and who's not. That that helped me out a lot. Um, and we go over that. That's 2002. That's that's a pretty normal thing for most teams in that in that era. 20 years later, 2022. You're San Francisco Giants. You pull into Texas for that four game series. Show me how it's different now. It's some of the things that you just mentioned are very much the same. Um, and I really, I really think that's one thing that's kind of cool is people prepare in a similar way. Now, what I'd say is different is at that, in that time period, everything was done as a team. And I think there is more own program stuff happening now than there ever has been. So by way of example, not everybody is going to be in the hitters meeting. Um, and that's going to be based on, you know, some dude's schedule, some dude's training schedule. Um, maybe they're going to be, you know, working out with the strength and conditioning coach. Perhaps they're going to be on the training table. Perhaps they're getting a, a longer recovery day. So whatever, we played extra innings the night before. Part of the team is going to come in earlier. And then maybe a few players are, who aren't in the lineup that day are going to roll to the ballpark at five o'clock in the afternoon, which, by the way, I know this is going to sound crazy. I'm totally fine with I don't think that everybody should be on the exact same program. And the reason I don't is because everybody's body is, is a little bit different. And look, um, this is a little bit of a diversion, but I think it's right on, on, on point. Manny Ramirez is my teammate in, um, in Boston. Manny was for me, he's the greatest right-handed hitter I ever saw. He's pretty good. And yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he, and he had, um, you know, he had a reputation for being lazy. People called him lazy and he was like the farthest thing from lazy. He just, he didn't show you his work like a lot of people do. So he would be spring training by way of example, when you got to the ballpark, he was in the cage. 
I got to the ballpark early, but he's already in the cage working. And it was just like inside and through every single baseball to right center field over and over and over repeating that swing. And then, and then like, as he got closer to the game, he's kind of like hanging out in the clubhouse, laughing and joking, sometimes sleeping on the training table, which is where he got some of that, that reputation. But he was, he was kind of crazy like a Fox, you know, he would, he would prepare for a baseball game in the way that he wanted to prepare for the baseball game, but he had watched the video he had done the work in the cage. He had taken the reps on the field and he was, he was out preparing people. He just didn't care if you saw it or, or you didn't. And so now 20, 20 years later, I, I just feel like, you know, let's say you're Brandon belt and you're going to get to the ballpark a, a little bit later, but once you get in the batter's box, you're a savage and a, and a, <laughs> and an assassin. I like, I'm totally fine with that. Cause you're, you're preparing your way to be ready for that night's baseball game. Now there is a team element to preparation, um, there's a team element to defense and we have to find ways to get guys together. But that scenario that you laid out Mariners, Rangers in Texas, like it, it just doesn't look that much different. It just, the timing of the day is different for different players. That's the best way I'd, I'd lay it out. I mean, how do you, how do you feel about that? I'd actually, be I, 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 I really, I really like your pride. I, I, okay. P- put me in the manager seat right now. I'm going to have a similar tack to what you're talking about, because I'm thinking this isn't little league. This isn't college baseball. I might handle it different in college. I might handle it different in high school, but when you're at the big league level, these are big league players. These are grown men. These are guys. I don't have to, I, I shouldn't have to, to police and babysit. So my thought process is if that's your program, that's when you get here. As long as you show up at seven o'clock, I got no problem with it. I played on two teams. I, I played with Ken Griffey Jr. as a young player when I, I came up and, and Kenny already had three years. We were the same age and I was in awe. But the way he went about his business, it's like every I, I as a player thought, I don't really care what he does. If he doesn't come out and stretch with us, I don't care. If he shows up at seven o'clock and is Ken Griffey Jr., he's going to make us win ball games. So I, I, I was like, there are different rules for different people. I'm a young rookie. I need to go up and stretch until I prove that I, I'm when I do what I want to do, it works out best for that team. 1999. And there were a couple teammates that had a problem with it. I played for the Braves. We ended up going to the World Series that year. And Chipper Jones was our MVP. And Chipper that year had a program. First guy at the ballpark. He'd be there playing cards. And uh, he wouldn't come out for batting practice. At about 6.30, he'd go to the cage with Don Baylor, and they would prepare the way they prepared all year. He went out and won the MVP. And there were guys who went, well, he needs to do this. I said, he doesn't need to do anything. I said, for me, this is just my opinion. As a player, I'm not offended by that. You do whatever the hell you want to do, because what's most important is you show up at seven o'clock and he had an MVP year without him. We don't go to the World Series. So if if you believe I'm a big I'm a big believer in if you think you're great, you are great. So I thought if this is what Chip, the the reason Chipper's having this MVP year and he thinks, you know, if Wade Boggs thinks he's hitting 350 because he's eating chicken every day. Damn it. Keep eating that chicken. Chipper, if you think soft toss and, and not going on the field, that's the reason you're having an MVP year. By all means, as a teammate, as someone that has a part in this, going to going to the next, you know, to the playoffs, to the World Series, keep doing whatever you're doing. That's where I that that's my thought process. Don't be disrespectful. 
Do your work, get it done, show up. But the most important thing is showing up at seven o'clock and being that player that you can be. I think it's a great point. And, um, you know, you made the point about like being, being grownups at, at the major league level. I mean, you know, imagine approaching Edgar Martinez in his mid thirties and saying, Hey, I have this way that you're going to be a better hitter. And that way is for you to show up, you know, for this three o'clock hitters meeting, like pro- Edgar probably did. So I'm not, I'm not like pointing him out, but look, I was, everybody gets ready at the, at their pace. And, um, you can tell the guys that are, are not prepared, even the veteran players that are not prepared. And those are the guys that I think the clubhouse needs to police, right? You mentioned this, another really good topic. Do you think managers should be policing the clubhouse and have the, like, be, be running point? Or do you think the manager can use players in the clubhouse as an extension and, and to sort of raise the bar for some of those guys who aren't preparing? What's your take on that? The best teams I've ever played for, the the best uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for? Just that that chemistry always mm-hmm. was always was the players running the clubhouse. The manager being distant. Uh the Lupinella ball clubs. We had a we had a bench coach, John McLaren, who was great. He would kind of make his rounds. He ha- he had a good relationship with all the players. And and it was a veteran team. You know, we kind of knew what we were doing, but Mm-hmm. But Johnny go out and he'd just get a pulse on the team. How's everybody feeling? Is everybody, does anybody need a day off? And, and Lou would be in his, his, you know, his office and rarely come out and, and interact with the players. I thought that was the best because as a manager, I, I think you have to keep an arm's length distance. You know, you can be cool with your players and have a relationship, but you get, you're going to be making a lot of decisions. Lots going to go on in your office. You know, you're going to be releasing guys and you're going to be yep. trading guys. Yep. And, and it's tough to get too close. You want to sometimes I played for Bruce Bochy, big teddy bear and, and loved him. And he was close with the players. He got close with some players. Um, but I think a, a, as a general rule, I think the arm's length's good. I think that the, the players need to police one another, check one another. Uh, another great clubhouse I had was, was uh, when I was in Cincinnati. And, and it was uh, Davey Johnson was the yep. manager. Probably the best manager, not my favorite manager, uh, but probably the best manager, uh, X's and O's and just decisions and and psychological uh, mental games he'd play with you to get the best out of you. I didn't realize this till years later, but I remember going up to Davey and going, now I know what you were doing to me. And he, he looked at me and goes, yeah, I've done this a few times, Brett. He was brilliant at it. Probably to this day, probably the best manager I played for. But once again, in that clubhouse, if there was a problem, those players took care of it. It it keeps a lot off you and it shows you how well prepared and mature your team at the time is. You know, Rob Thompson is now the the manager of Philadelphia. He's my bench coach when I was there and I love Rob. He used to talk about, um, about the Yankees dugout. And one of the things that he called out, which I thought was really interesting, is um, if there was a player during a game... And so at this time, Rob was um, like Joe Girardi's bench coach. And he said, if there's a player in the game who, who wasn't getting it done on the bases or on defense or made a, a bonehead play that needed to be called out, his first instinct was to go talk to that player, right? But Jeter would intercept the opportunity. And as that player was coming off the field, Jeter would, would tell Tomps, hey, I got this. And then Jeter would go 
handle it with the player. And I, I love that, right? Like if, if our players are raising the bar for our other players, that's the way it works best. And I can remember um, Terry Francona in the, in the clubhouse with, with the Red Sox in, in, in 04. It was, you know, the, the veteran players, he would call one of the veteran players in and say, this is like Jason Veritek or Trot Nixon or Bill Miller and, and say, hey, look, like this is what's happening in the clubhouse. I'm not liking it. Can you handle it? And those guys would go out and handle it on his behalf. And, and, and Tito had a challenge in that clubhouse with big personalities, Pedro, Schill, Manny, others. Like these were big, big superstar players with big personalities. And he just relied on the veteran players to, to tackle those issues. And, and I really, really do think that's a, that's a good way to approach even, even the modern game in a very similar way. Although I even if you want to raise the bar for players, you want to make them better and you want to challenge them. You also have to build the relationship. So being completely absent and not, um, not developing those relationships, I don't think is the best way to go about it. But um, I know there are plenty of managers who have done it that way and been very successful in doing so. Yeah. I just think the players doing it for you. I mean, you've got enough on your plate. You got enough things to do during the day, man. If you've got a, a group of veteran players in that clubhouse that you don't have to worry about that. Like, Oh, I, I don't need to call that guy in. Cause I already know so-and-so is going to handle that thing, man. That, that, that's, for me as a manager, I think that'd be really cool to, to know that's the kind of the atmosphere I've created. I think, I think it's really beneficial in the long run. I want to talk about uh, your career a little bit. Reseda, Los Angeles, you grew up in, uh, you went to Cal state Fullerton for a second, ended up going to Moore park 57th round pick and uh, got to Detroit. And, and I think you were three times an all-star in the minor leagues. You got to Detroit. 98 was your cup of coffee. Uh, 99, you hit 18 home runs and, and you got to Texas in, in 2000. One of the, the two times that you hit 300, you hit 302. Um, those are some years in Texas. Uh, who was your, who was your first man? Was it Johnny Oates? Yeah. Johnny Oates was my first and, man. And, and Naren, Naren were in, Naren was there too, before Buck came in and, and you were moving on by then anyway. Yeah, I got traded from Texas to to Colorado. Clint Hurdle was my my manager in uh, in Colorado, but I had uh, Johnny Oates, as you mentioned, as my first manager, and and Jerry Naren as my second in Texas, and Larry Parrish as my manager in uh, um, in Detroit. But w- w- you know, as you walk through the beginning stages of my career, you walk through you know growing up in Reseda, my quick my quick chance at Cal State Fullerton, where I really fell on my face, and then the 57th round draft pick stuff. One of the things that I think helps me as a manager now is seeing the game from a lot of different perspectives. So, you know, the first perspective obviously is kind of the underdog, the 57th round draft pick in the minor league system who nobody thinks, nobody thinks is good. Basically. Right. Right. The, the po- right. the politics there could be hell. They could be. I mean, you're, you're basically a roster filler. So you have to play your, your way out of that role. And you rent, you mentioned my minor league years. Like I really excelled in the minor leagues. Every time I was given an opportunity, I, I played well. My first full season, you know, I, I had, you know, 26 homers and a and hundred RBIs and, and, and played really well, which put me on the map. So the cool thing about that is while I, w- I was seen as a roster filler and I saw the game as a roster filler at the minor league level, I was also the Tigers number one prospect three years later. So I, I can also see the game now through the eyes of the big prospects in the system right now for the giants, you know, it's Marco Luciano and Kyle Harrison and, 
and Luis Matos and Casey Schmidt, these minor league players who have the spotlight on them and are trying to excel and get to the, to the major leagues. I can see it through their eyes. And when I came to the major leagues, I would played every day and played center field every day for the Tigers. And, um, you know, that was my role. So I was able to see myself, I've seen the game through that role. And then, you know, 2003, I started game one of the, the ALCS with Andy, Andy Pettit on the mound and, you know, saw what that felt like playing in the playoffs, biggest stage in Yankee stadium. And then also saw the game through, you know, the 24th or 25th man on the roster and, and the role player and got to see the strategy of the game. This was one of the blessings of, of being in Boston with, with Terry Francona and, and Brad Mills. I was able to, to kind of strategically watch a game unfold. I wanted to, to know what my role was going to be before they did. I was ready for the pinch hit opportunity. I was ready for the defensive replacement opportunity. I saw how the bullpen was getting used. And so just seeing the game from all those different perspectives, I don't think there's a player in our clubhouse, no matter where I am, that I, I'm not able to relate to on, on some level. The only thing I wasn't able to see the game through the eyes of is, is the superstar player. So, you know, Buster Posey, I never got, I never got a chance to be a Buster Posey, never got a chance to be, um, I was in, I was in Philly obviously for a couple of years and so no, no Bryce Harper perspective and no, to get their perspective, I have to talk to other people who have been in their shoes so I can learn how to, to, to help them along the way. But again, all of those weird experiences I had, um, even in college, I go back to college days at Cal state Fullerton. The reason that was, that didn't work is because I was, I was drinking. I wasn't going to class. I was, I was partying and I basically got asked to leave Cal state Fullerton full scholarship at the time was the best baseball school in the country. And they, they called me and said, you're not right for this program. And they were right. I, w- I wasn't mature enough. So I can also go to our minor league players who are falling on their face because they're, you know, 19 years old and they're not ready for, you know, what they're facing right now. And again, this was a huge blessing. All of those challenges were a good blessing for me to be able to see the game through the eyes of these players. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I didn't know that about your Cal State Fullerton experience. Oh, yeah, that, I, was that a, is, I, was, I was a wreck. Yeah, but you know what? You, you have those experiences now. So now you can relate to that 18-year-old kid in camp that maybe he's partying yep. too much. It's spring training. He's out in Scottsdale every day. And, yep. and you're yep. kind of yep. going, dude, dude, I, I've been there this is a big opportunity for you. And here's how, here's what I did. Yeah, exactly. So the thing I'll say about that, and the last thing I want to kind of hear your perspective on your, your, your journey, Mm -hmm. but my, my, when that kid is in the minor leagues, and by the way, I was the farm director of the Dodgers for three years. So I basically, you know, my job was to, to oversee the minor leagues. So when a kid is, you know, 18 years old and he's, you know, tripping all over himself and, and making really bad decisions. I, I don't give up. I'm not going to be like, okay, I'm evaluating that player as, as a wreck and a mess. He might be in that moment, but I don't think he, he, he will be necessarily a year from now or two years from now. And that's what, that's the best way to see human beings. They can change. They can, they can grow and they can develop and we can't, we can't quit on them. Right. We can't quit on the player. We can't quit on the man. We have to stick by their side as long as we, as we can. And what about, what about you? Like what, how did you see the game coming up through the minor leagues? Oh, minor leagues. I, I was, uh, you know, I went to college and I was the, the casual partier in college. I got to the minor leagues. I didn't, 
Gabe, I didn't do anything. I didn't go out after games. I was such a baseball rat. I went to Peninsula, Virginia, a ball. And I thought, what a shithole. I'm coming from USC. But you know what? I didn't care. I didn't care. I was making 750 bucks a month. I I, I bunked up with I, I found a way back then. You didn't have like uh, nobody paid for your housing. You, you didn't have, uh, you know, foster parents that that took you in you kind of you kind of did what you got to do i remember i slept on a couch it was 125 dollars a month and i had the couch with five other guys and you know what i did i went out to the ballpark every day i hit early i hit early i played the game i came home i watched espn i saw what the big guys were doing i just thought i got to get the hell out of a ball because i got to get to the big leagues and i did that in double a and i did that triple a and and then i got to the big leagues and got some humble pie because i thought it was going to be easy <laughs> um, and and i remember you know we just i just had frank viola on recently and, and i told a story i said frankie you're 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 I've got a memory of you that's just ingrained in my brain. He said, what's that? I said, I got to the big leagues. I faced Arthur Rhodes, my, my debut. Ooh. I get to first base and, and I tell the first base, I forget who it is at the time. He congratulates me, gives me my ball. And, and I tell him, hey, thank you a lot. But I said, inside my mind, I'm going. He, he said, oh, he said, you got 2,999 to go, kid. And I looked at him <laughs> and, and I thanked him and, and I... But in my brain, I was going, this guy has no clue. I'm going to get way more hits than that. And, it, it, and that's that's how I was, Gabe, as a young player. I was just, man, on fire. Now, two days later, I, I faced Frank Viola. And they said, hey, he's got a really good changeup. I said, yeah, whatever, really good changeup. You know, I faced those soft toss and lefties with the good changeup. I'll tell you what, that was my first wake up. I came in after that. I think I struck out three times. I came in and I was just in my locker going, they don't throw changeups like that in AAA. And, right. you know, that was my first kind of little, all right, this is different. And then I struggled. And then I now I have to make an adjustment. But that that was all. It was all a learning process for me. I got my butt. I, I didn't really have any trouble through the minor leagues. I got to the big leagues. I got some humble pie. I was here. You know, it was a big deal, me coming up. And I was this offensive second baseman. And to be honest with you, my first five, six weeks, I fell on my face. And I'd never failed in, the, in, in pro ball before. And I didn't know what to do. And I went into the offseason. I made some adjustments. And I started started sitting on breaking balls. And, and next thing you know, I got it a little bit in 93. And I started to learn. And then next year, I hit 320. So, But two years later, I hit 233. So I, you look at the back of my bubblegum card, I laugh. I'm all over the map. I've had some unbelievable MVP years and I've had some years where, and you, you probably know these times I'm sitting under the, under the, uh, the stands, like almost in a fetal position. Like I can't hit anymore. What's wrong with yeah. me? You know, this, no doubt. No these are doubt. the times, but I think it makes you stronger and it makes you, like you said, you've had so many experiences in so many different roles, so many things that from the Cal state situation to being an everyday player, to being, having to be ready to pinch hit. Uh, you've got all these, you've got all these experiences. That's life. That's what makes us better. That's what makes us grow. That's what gives us knowledge. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, as a, as a 30 year old, I looked at that 21 year old kid and I laughed at him. And now as a 53 year old, I laugh at that 30 year old that thought he was the greatest player in the world. And I was having big years. Um, so it, it, it's just a life thing that, that, that as we go on, we're, we're never uh, we're never not learning. And, and I think, uh, you know, I 
I pride myself as I know this game pretty darn good, the, the nuances of the game. But I have a kid now and he's playing in the minor leagues and I have conversations with him and he brings up something and I'm going, that's really interesting. You know, he's a Princeton guy, so I'm not a Princeton guy. So, you know, he's that intellect and he'll put questions to me that make me think. And I and here's me sitting here thinking I know everything about this game and my 22 year old son will bring something up. I'll go, that's really interesting. And it's a cool concept. And I'll kind of look into it and see if, if there's yeah. an angle there. So that's, that's what, that's, that's my take in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. My, my, my sons are, um, they're 23 and 21. And my, just like, just like you, my older son, Chase, um, he went to UCLA. He was a quarterback in high school, was not a baseball player, just, just football. But then he really, um, got into computer science and he started to, you know, he's now he's basically an engineer. He's working for a a startup company in, in LA and, and finishing up at UCLA. But my favorite thing, Booney, is having adult conversations and learning from my kids. You know, both of them. Um, my, my younger son, Dane is at the university of British Columbia. He's playing, he's playing football. He's a, a tailback. Neither one of them were, were baseball players, but I learned from him all the time in every conversation as well. And this is, um, I think you have to be open to understanding that that generation has a lot of interesting knowledge. This is actually um, how I feel about the younger people in, in baseball. Now, and when I say younger people, I'm talking about, you know, the, the early twenties, sometimes interns, but sometimes folks on, on like our analytics team by way of example, or in our R and D department, it really pissed me off when, um, when I was playing and some of the, the older players or any players for that matter would like sort of call that crew out as like nerds. And I know that it, it, I understand why it, it was like that, you know, they're so smart and they can offer so much, the, the, the young people in the game. And, and, you know, if my, my sons were working in baseball, I just like stop and listen to, to what they have to say. I think it's really cool and, and humble of you, you know, to have your 22 year old, you know, in the minor leagues, give you some concepts in baseball or some things to think about. And you're open to them and, and you're, you're open to learning from them. Everybody has something to offer. And I think if we come at those conversations with an open mind, we can get a lot out of them. Yeah, because I think to just to dismiss them on on the surface is is ignorant. It's not doing your due diligence. How is this game going to yeah. go on if the old timers just dismiss it as oh it was better in my day? I mean that's to me it's 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 absurd to take that to take that tack to take that position. It's like are you serious? What do you think we're just going to stay in a time capsule and we're not going to leave two thousand and two? It's just no life moves on. You'd be amazed what you can learn in this game if you if you keep going forward and you th- and it doesn't mean you have to accept everything. I have I still no, have, challenge it. No, challenge I, it. You should see the arguments I have with Aaron Boone. Aaron's a very smart, very astute. I respect his 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 baseball IQ. I do, and I think he's a smart kid and he's a good guy. But me and him will will have drag out debates on certain tops. I'll say you're wrong. I understand where you're coming from, but you're wrong. Trust me. And it will. And usually, Gabe, as you expect, I'm usually right when it comes when it when it comes that down. No, I'm kidding. What would, but, what, but what I would Aaron it. say? Aaron would say I'm right. 
how he would. <laughs> I, he, he might not admit it, but but I it, but I respect it. And, you know, I learned stuff from him, too. He'll tell me that and I'll go. I never thought about it that way. You're right. I've learned something today and, and uh, I'll give him his kudos. But we love to to have that debate. I debate with my son and sometimes I'm right and sometimes he's right. But it but it's fun to talk it out and you can both learn. You can always you can constantly learn, man. And, and I, I think, you know, flip it around to these young players. Listen to the older players. There's a lot you can learn from a veteran guys, the guys that played in the 80s, the 90s, 2000s. This young player with all this technology and all this data, that's great. But listen to an old timer just about other the other facets of the game of living the life, how to be a pro, how to behave like there's a lot you can learn. So I think it's a two way street. But I think as the elders, we, we really need to be open to the new generation because that's that's the game today. You know, I, I, I laugh. You know, this came up a couple of years ago. What are the unwritten rules of baseball? You know, and I was getting calls. Brett, what are the unwritten rules? And I really said, you know, I, I want to think about this. And I thought about it. You know what the unwritten rules of baseball are? Whatever the people on the field presently determine them to be. When we were playing, it was kind of an eye for an eye. And that's the way the game was because that's what the players in the game dictated they were. Today, it's different. It's whatever they decide. It's not what I decide. It's not what Goose Gossage says are the rules of the game. The rules are whatever the current players decide the rules are. That's right. That's right. Anyway. No, I... I- I, I was thinking about the concept of, of listening, right? And the concept of being open-minded. You said having the younger players listen to kind of the, the veteran players or the elder players. I think that's absolutely true. Um, if the veteran players come at the younger players with the same level of respect, like I might have something to learn from this young player, right. that's when I think the relationship's really hum. So, look, you have, ba- you have veteran players that are – kind of bad for younger players and you have veteran players that are great for younger players. Right. Just because you've been in the game for 10 years, eight years, whatever, doesn't make you a good veteran player. I came up with the Tigers. As I mentioned, Tony Clark and Damian Easley were just these excellent veteran players that um, they were, they were open. They were listeners. They were, they were talkers and they didn't treat me as a, a 22 year old coming to the big leagues as less than a grown-up, right? And I really, I'll never forget that. There's a couple of other veteran players who had a much different tact, and I'll never forget that either. So, and I've seen veteran players who are just, you're just a little bit insecure, and and they don't want to see anybody else come up and take their shine. And those are the ones that I, you know, I just say, hey, like, listen and, and be as open-minded as you can, but turn the page quick and find a veteran that is really willing to have, um, you know, a, a, an adult to an adult conversation with you. Without a doubt. I mean, it's essential and you can't come at a young current player uh, with a, I'm a, a better than or more knowledgeable than approach. They're, they're, they're going to dismiss you out of hand. You know, think about, I, I think about sitting in my Mariner locker room and, and seeing uh, a player that I grew up watching, you know, and time to time guys come to the clubhouse a lot and sometimes I was really disappointed. They'd come over to my locker and we'd have a, a discussion and I'd, they'd walk away. I looked at him differently than I did as a kid. Like, how can he say something like that? 
<laughs> and other yeah. guys, other guys came over and, and uh, sit down and have a discussion and I'd walk away. I'm like, he's everything I thought he was. He's the great, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. and, and, and that's, that happens today. So always remember, you know, when you're next, the players today, they're going to know who you are. They're going to know your bubblegum card. Those stats are never going to go away. And they're you're going to get that instant respect. But to keep that respect, uh, you've got to show them that you deserve it. And, and that's good. That's great. You know, I, I completely think, agree. Just, just being able to say, so you're, you're, you're making a decision as a, a young player. And to your point, I'm going to respect you or I'm not. And it's not going to be based on your performance. Your performance is, is, is the, what it is, is what it, it is. It opens the door. It opens the door without a doubt. But how do you keep that door open? Great point. Um, 2004, give me a quick, uh, I, I, I'm going to let you, I, I want to be able to let you go here shortly, but I, I want to talk about a few things. 2004 sure. world series. Fascinating to me. I think all the things I've seen in sports, it's one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. And you guys are down three Oh, and you end up coming back and beating the Yankees four straight. Still to this day, I, I think about it and I go, that's one of the most impressive things in sports. Maybe a top three I've ever seen in my life. You were in the, you were in the, on that team. Tell me what that was like. Yeah. So I, I played, I played a role on that team. I was a, I was a platoon player. I was Trot Nixon's platoon partner. So Trot was, you know, the, the bat against right-handed pitching. I was a bat against left-handed pitching. I ran the bases for, for Manny late in games. I played defense for many late in games. I was on the field. Last out was made, made it at Bush Stadium in 04. Um, for that reason, I didn't start that game. I came into the game late. So very much a role player. And I prided myself on being an excellent teammate as a, a semi-veteran player at that point, just looking for ways I could support the group. We just had a tenacious, relentless team. And it wasn't the most talented group in the world, but it was a team that they kept coming at you and never quit. And that was from the beginning. That was the middle of the season to the end of the season, like all the way through. We just were relentless. You never, never gave up. And we go down three, nothing to the Yankees in 2004 ALCS and the entire world says we're dead. Even our, our own fans in Boston is as much as they were backing us. I think there were times when they doubted our ability to come back and um, we had a pretty good starting rotation and, and, a, and plenty good offense. But when you're down, to a team like the 04 Yankees, it's it's just dire. Like it, it looks like pretty bleak. I'll be honest with you. Even in the clubhouse, I know there are some some folks who who say that we knew we were going to win that series. I just don't think that's true. I think we knew that we had given it a really good run, but that at some point this thing was going to come to an end. But we were going to keep fighting tooth and nail, and that keep that that fight because it it never went away. As a group, as a group, I'm talking about all the bench players, all the starters the rotation, the coaching staff, the bullpen, all of us, you win that, you win that first one. And now you're down three, one, you know, you have some starting pitchers who are on the mound who can give you a chance to win the game. You see the light and that it's possible. You win the second one, you're down three, two. And, and now, you know, if you win, you win this next one, you're going to win the whole thing. And that's really what it felt like. You got a little bit of a momentum and that momentum carried you through the final two games of that series. And then I'll tell you what, like no disrespect to the 04 Cardinals. You're a great team, excellent team. It just felt like there was no chance we were going to lose a single game and we end up sweeping them. That, that's my recollection is, is it was a game of momentum. Once we got the momentum on our side, um, we just couldn't be stopped. 
Unreal. What a story. I mean, in that, you know, the the curse, all that was broken. It, it, was, it was pretty cool. I remember man, I was still playing at the time and I remember watching and going, that's that's unbelievable what they just did. Um, another interesting thing in your career. I don't know that I've seen anybody do this after the 06 season. You, I think you might have had an injury. What was going through your mind? You coached in 07. In between, yeah, and, and then you came back and played three more years. Yeah, I'll give. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna break this down for you, and then I gotta. I gotta run. I know you got it. I really you got it. Yeah, I really appreciate you know you giving me the form and the opportunity to have this conversation. Um, so, in in 2004, this is a really good transition. I think the story starts in 2004. We win the World Series. The Red Sox offer me a contract to come back and and play in 05. I feel at that point in my career, like I still have a lot to give. And I feel like I want to be a starting player again. I had that experience in, in 99. I had it in 2000. I had it in 2001. I was a pretty good player. I felt like I deserved it and, and wanted to, to play every day. I couldn't find the opportunity in the United States to play every day. So I have a choice. I can go back to Boston on a, on a one-year deal, one-year guaranteed contract, uh, and be in the same role you know, platoon player with, with Trot Nixon and maybe try to uh, go back and, and repeat in 05. Or I can go to Japan. Japan offers me a two, two-year two contract to go on the area Giants, um, kind of the, the team that's most like the New York Yankees in, in, in Japan. They offer me a two-year deal, play center field every day. Like in my brain, I'm like, okay, I'll go, I'll go there. I'll play center field every day. I'll prove to everybody in, in the major leagues that I can do this and come back and parlay that contract into um, a, a longer one in the United States. Went over to Japan in 05 and did not play well. At the same time, the Red Sox were having difficulty with filling that role that I played in 04. And they came and they got me from Japan, essentially in the middle of the season. Wasn't playing well for the Giants. They were willing to release me from the contract. The Red Sox were willing to sign me. Came back middle of the season, 05, and played the rest of the season for the Red Sox. Come September of 2005, I'm playing my role. We're pushing towards the playoffs. I'm on first base. Tony Graffinino is at the plate. Tony Graffinino was a role player for that 05 Red Sox team. He hits a screaming line drive to left center field in uh, at the Sky Dome. And I'm thinking right off the bat, this ball is in the gap. I'm scoring from first base on a double take a good hard turn um, leading up to, to second base. Just as I'm pushing off second base to push hard towards third base, ball goes out of the ballpark. That line drive that Tony Graffinino hit that I thought was going to be a double is a home run. I slow up just a tiny bit and my Achilles tendon pops. So I don't know if anybody who's listening to this podcast know what that's like, but it feels like you get hit with a bat from behind. Like you have no idea where it's coming from. My, you know, just a full rupture of my Achilles tendon. I can't even get around the bases. Cart has to come out and, uh, and take me off the field because I can't, I can't put any pressure on my foot. Pinch runner comes in and finishes the trot for me. So tear my Achilles tendon out for the year. Don't get to go to the playoffs. One of the most challenging things I ever had to deal with. I'm able to come back in 2006, but not as a great defensive version of myself. One thing I prided myself on was getting good jumps, playing good D. Wasn't able to do that. So we're in the middle of the 2006 season in Boston. 
I'm at the major league level, but I'm not a very good player. Get to the end of 2006, and I think this, this injury may turn out to be career-ending for me. The Red Sox, Ben Sherrington, Mike Hazen, Theo Epstein, these are guys that I mentioned earlier in this podcast, reach out to me. They said, hey, look, like, do you know what? We need a manager in, in Greenville, South Carolina, in A-ball. Do you know anybody who might fit the mold? You know, somebody who cares a lot about the game, wants to make players better, um, and thinks they can make a play, uh, an impact in, in player development. There's actually Ben Sherrington, who's now the president of baseball operations for the Pittsburgh Pirates. So Ben says this to me. I said, Ben, I'll, th- I'll give it a little thought. Let me think about it. And as I was thinking about who might fit that mold in, in, in 07 for the Greenville Drive and in, in um, the South Atlantic League in Greenville, South Carolina, I realized what the Red Sox were saying to me. They basically didn't want to tell me that they weren't going to sign me back, didn't want to tell me that they, they weren't sure I was going to be a good enough player to continue my career. I called Ben back and I said, hey, man, should I, should I be looking in the mirror on this one? Is this, are you basically saying, you know, maybe I should be thinking about taking this job? And the answer to that question is, yeah, Cap, like I you know, obviously don't want to push you out of the game, but, you know, you want this job, you've got it, put you on a track and um, think you can be a big league manager. It's like, sweet. All right, cool. Gave it a little thought, said yes to the opportunity, went to Greenville that year, loved it, had the time of my life, managed and um, really enjoyed that experience, get to the end of that season. And I realize that my body is feeling much better. My Achilles tendon is feeling more normal again. And I just said to myself, I know that I can manage later down the road, but I'm not going to be able to play forever. So, um, called my agent, told him I wanted to train to get ready to play the 2008 season. Went through my off season, was having a hard time getting a look. Doug Melvin, who I, who was the general manager of the Rangers when I was there, um, had sent some scouts out to, to see me train in, in, uh, in the middle of the Valley in Los Angeles. I, I was looking good enough to them where they were going to take a chance on me and give me, um, a major league contract, gave me a one-year deal play for the Brewers, came back and, and had one of my better years um, with the Brewers in my entire career. Played really well. Same role, platoon platoon player. Um, I, I played a lot of right field, played a lot of center field, played well, and parlayed that into, into three more major league seasons. So um, that's the story of, of how I went to manage and came back and, and played in the major league. Very cool. Interesting, man. You've had, you've had quite a run and, uh, currently, uh, you're in your, I believe this is going to be your fourth year in San Francisco. Fourth year in San Francisco. Um, you know, it'll be my, my six years, my six year managing in the major leagues. And, um, you know, my ambitions are, 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 are pretty high. <laughs> I want to, yeah. I want to tough division, I tough division you're in. I got to tell you. Not easy. <laughs> not easy. The, Do- the, the Dodgers do a pretty good job of putting their clubs together. The Padres have been really good. And I'll tell you what, um, you know, the Rockies are, are always dangerous, but the, the Arizona Diamondbacks last year, uh, they were sneaky, sneaky, good, very, very athletic group, very young group. They're going to be good for a while. So um, that's going to be a challenge as well. You're right. It's one of the toughest divisions in the game. Gabe Kappa, I appreciate coming on, man. This this was very cool. Very, uh, I learned some stuff, and and uh, best of luck to you, uh, 2021, your manager of the year, um, and just a lot of exper- a lot of experience, a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting things going on. But best of luck to you and the San Francisco Giants uh, going forward. 
What we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to wrap it up for the Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boone Podcast. The executive producer is Rich Herrera. The digital content for the Boone Podcast is provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here, here on the Moon Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.